0: The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. Thank you all for coming. And since we did a transfer of merit ceremony, I wanted to um, just mention to offer some special merit for Reverend Master Astor. Uh, She she fell when she was over in England, apparently not too seriously, but uh, makes it a little difficult to get around. And Reverend um, Amanda uh, apparently broke her left wrist, so she's having some problems. So whatever merit we can offer for them and we welcome back Reverend Valora, Reverend Master Astor, Reverend Valora, Reverend Traherne and Reverend Vera from their time at the OBC gathering over in Throstle, and Reverend Master Mayon and Reverend Master Dyson will be back at the end of this week and then all 16 of us will be here. (laughs) So um, I wanted to talk and share with you uh, some reflections on practice in our daily life. Because we all practice, we all have a practice. And then it occurred to me, well, am I using the verb or am I using the noun? You know, does it make any difference? And it's been, as some of you know, it's been six months uh, since I was in rehab with my broken femur. And uh, it's interesting because my time there is still with me. And I think it's what they call a lasting impression. And I suspect it'll be there for a while because it was a, an everyday recognition that, I don't know why this hadn't come to me sooner. I've been a monk for 30 years. Um, the every, but it was an everyday recognition that I can't depend on life My life continuing the way it is now, or the way it was then, and of course it's not doing that. And seeing people in all states of what I could only call decrepitude, or that's a real word or not, um, made me realize that I need to focus even more than I have been on what I'm practicing in my daily life. Uh, You know, if someone said to me, What's your practice? I would say, well, the precepts and meditation, and then I'd go on about my business, but what does that really mean? What does it mean when we practice meditation and we practice the precepts? So what came up for me in reflecting all this was um, a Buddhist saying, or at least a saying I've come across in Buddhist teaching, that we die the way we live, and I thought, well, if I want to have a peaceful death, if I wanna express my gratitude during the time I die, then I have to look a little more closer at the life I'm leading right now. And about that time, I came across a poem by one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, And I'll read it to you. We're a little late in the year. This is called A Summer Day, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So that's a question that I started reflecting on. What do I want to do with this one wild and precious life? I wouldn't have thought of my life as wild, uh, being a monastic, but on the other hand, it depends on what your definition of wild is, doesn't it? If you think of wild as untamed and open and not restricted, then all of our lives are wild because to a great degree we can make our own choices. And for all of us in this room, and probably listening or looking, we lead very comfortable lives. You know, we have drinking water, we have food, we have a warm place to, to be most of the time, and so... In one sense, our life isn't wild at all, but in another sense it is because it's up to us to choose what we want to do. And of course, that question brought up another question. Actually, three questions, which I'll share with you. And they are, what do I want to do with the remainder of my life? What could I do that I'm not already doing? What am I doing that it would be better not doing? For me, that's the big one. And I think it all boils down to practice. When I say I practice the precepts and I practice meditation, does that adequately cover my everyday life? Does it cover your everyday life? Meditation and precepts can be the core, but what does it mean to practice meditation and to practice the precepts? I'll quote from a book which I refer to often, and it's titled, Invoking Reality. It's by the late John Dido Laurie. And I think it has some provocative uh, advice on leading our daily life within the precepts. It has a lot of advice on being the precepts. And in this particular, when he talks about taking refuge in the three treasures, this is what he has to say we are the vessel of the dharma at this time and in this place what we do each sitting each moment with our work with our zazen and services with our vows not only affirms and verifies the enlightenment of all of the buddha and all the past buddhas but also preserves and protects the dharma so it will be available for future generations. So that could be one definition of looking at my daily life in light of the precepts and in light of meditation. That what I'm doing, what I'm being, is helping me, but it's also helping future generations. And then he continues... In order to reach our full human potential, we must live completely and die completely. And perhaps dying completely is more relevant for me than it is for you. I turned 85 last December. I don't think I have another 20 or 30 years here. But if someone had read this to me when I was 20 or 30 or 40, I would have said, okay, I'll think about that sometime. But I think as Buddhists, it behooves us to think about the end of life so that we can look at the continuation of life and what we're doing with our life right now. He says we must live completely and die completely. In order for this practice to function, it needs to be engaged. We need to actually do it. It does not happen automatically because we put on a robe or attend a retreat or read a book on Zen. It does not happen that way. We have to work for it. We have to put ourselves on the line. I particularly like this sentence. We have to practice the edge of our life in order to receive the Dharma. And then for me, what that means is I have to be willing to move out of my comfort zone. I have to be willing to move out of who I think I am, what I think I've accomplished, who I think I am, and essentially be willing to be uncomfortable. I'll go back to what he said. We have to practice the edge of our life in order to receive the Dharma. Undeniably it is here. We are surrounded, interpenetrated, enveloped, and swallowed by it. But most of us are blind and deaf to it. We do not see it, we do not hear it, and we do not feel it. So his ending question is, when will we wake up? I think that Waking up for me means doing something every day that's going to remind me of what my daily practice is, and it's going to allow me to ask the question what am I doing? And that brought up for me, I mean, one thought leads to another, that I look a lot at being and doing. And I came across this wonderful little saying, which at least resonated with me, and it was, so much to do and so little time, so much to be and all the time we need. And I think about that often because if I focus on doing, you know, what I come up with is, oh, there's too much on my plate. And, of course, my answer to that is get a smaller plate. Um, but I think it's looking at what, not what we're doing, but who we are being. And I was reminded of that. The other day I was looking through some old files in the office and I came across a file that I have from the time I was helping Reverend Chose, which has been five years ago. And this is appropriate because he passed on on October 29th, something around 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Um, a few of us were with him. I maybe was an then then I don't remember, but I was with him a lot. And I helped after he died to collect up his personal belongings, and we distributed them as need be. And I didn't know what to do with all of the get well cards that he'd received. So, of course, I kept them. I put a rubber band around them, and then I came across them. And then I thought, hmm, so I read through some of them, and I'm going to read you just a few sentences from some of them. I doubt you remember, but I first met you some 15 years ago when I took the precepts at Chakai. You were head cook that year, and I worked in the kitchen. I wanted to let you know that was a most par- powerful experience for me. Your example your gruffness, your care with the food, all helped me to understand the true beauty of silence and giving your full attention to one task at a time. I treasure that memory. Thank you for your practice, for your training, and your example. Another one wrote, I will always be grateful And these are just paragraphs. They're obviously paragraphs before and after. I will always be grateful for having known you and having spent time with you at the Abbey. I will always remember your kindness and caring. Someone else wrote, we don't know each other very well. In fact, you may not really remember me, but you have made a difference in my life and having heard that you are now under hospice care i wanted to write and say so i have been visiting the abbey since chukai in 1981 and this person goes on with some specific examples thank you too for your humor and your no nonsense style of teaching with and without words Someone else wrote, Dear Master Chose, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for your training. For many years, you have been a source of inspiration for me. When I first started visiting the Abbey, you were guest master, and you inspired me to commit to my training. Over the years, your Dharma talks and insights at retreats have led me to look more deeply at the Dharma and at my own training, and I have benefited in numerous and other ways. And then another one, I think this is the last one I'll read to you. Dear Reverend Master Chose, I am sorry to hear of your illness and wanted to let you know that I'm thinking of you and sending you much merit. Thank you for your training, spiritual friendship, and everything you have done for the Sangha these last several years. I remember fondly working with you on some projects at the Abbey in the past. One time, I remember you saying to me, Don't think, John. Excellent advice for me, as I often overthink things and get lost in my head. Much love and merit to you, your family, and the Sangha. So what I took away from that was a number of teachings. One is that it is indeed what we are, you know, that makes a difference in our life. And it's kindness and putting that kindness into our everyday life so it shows to other people. Now, as some of you know, um, Reverend Master Chose was an intelligent being, right? He studied at Cambridge and et cetera, et cetera. He and I shared a love of poetry. He liked books. But that wasn't what he was. What he was was a kind person. And I've read through some of the letters that he wrote back to some of these people and he wanted to be able to share his to share the dharma with people one of the uh, people actually wrote you know i feel like y- you teach us what reverend master gu taught you which of course is exactly what happened so looking at the kindness that he manifested I was reminded also, I've been really fortunate in my monastic office work here. I have um, I, a letter in Master Mako's file from a woman that trained with her at the Portland Buddhist Priory. And what this person said was, I never went to any of the services or any of the meditation periods. She just needed someone to help her in the garden. So I went and helped her in the garden. And then what she says, I'm sorry I didn't bring it with me, it's very eloquent that her presence was the teaching. Her, Reverend Mako's presence was the teaching. And again, she mentioned kindness, just the kindness in her being there. And I thought, these are lessons I can learn. So I think we need to set aside a few minutes each day to reflect on our daily life. Hopefully, we're able to set aside some time for meditation, but I, th- I found it really helpful to set aside some time to just reflect, not to think, mind you, there's a difference, but just to reflect on our daily life and ask myself, what am I learning? What am I doing? And a helpful routine for me has been to ask myself two questions because I often find myself having that reflection time just before I go to bed. And it brought up two questions. What have I learned today and what am I grateful for? And when I thought about being grateful it thought about all the readings that i've done on gratitude things about keeping a gratitude journal etc and i remembered that there was a wonderful book for me a wonderful book by oliver by the late oliver sacks and has a nice clear title gratitude it contains four essays that he wrote Shortly before he died, I think he died in 2015. And so I looked in here, and I'll read a couple of sentences to you. A month ago, well, more than a couple sentences. A month ago, I felt that I was in good health, even robust health. At 81, I still swim a mile a day. But my luck has run out. A few weeks ago, I learned that I have multiple metastases in the liver. The radiation and lasering to remove the eye tumor, which caused the metastasis, ultimately left me blind in one eye. Given the particulars of my case, the likelihood is very small that I will live very long. I am among the unlucky ones. I feel grateful that I have been granted nine years of good health and productivity since the original diagnosis. But now I am face to face with dying. It is up to me now to choose how to live out the months that remain to me. I have to live in the richest, deepest, most productive way I can. And he continues, I have been increasingly conscious for the last ten years or so of death among my contemporaries. My generation, he was what, 81 when he wrote this, my generation is on the way out. I could say the same thing. And each death I have felt as an abruption, a tearing away as part of myself. And when I... Look at Reverend Chose's death and Burmaster Chisho's death, Burmaster Daisui, Burmaster Chisho Chiyu. I was helping with all of them, and I could relate to with each death I have felt a tearing away as part of myself. There will be no one like us when we are gone. But then there's no one like anyone else ever. When people die, they cannot be replaced. They leave holes that cannot be filled. For it is the fate, the genetic and neural fate, of every human being to be a unique individual, to find one's own path, to live one's own life, and to die one's own death. I cannot pretend that I am without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. I have loved and been loved. I have given much, and I have given something in return. I have read and traveled and thought and written. And he closes with, Above all, I have been a sentient being, a thinking animal on this beautiful planet, and that in itself has been an enormous privilege and adventure. So I I think what I learned from that is, yes, it's good to write down at the end of the day, what am I grateful for? But I want to learn to be grateful all day, every minute of each day, And to be able to just look around and take time to notice things. I was walking um, along the upper cloister the other day looking down towards the central garden. And all at once there were all these birds flittering down on the ground and up in the air and et cetera, et cetera. And they were little Tiny birds, really tiny, that little speckled backs, little tiny beaks. I don't know what time they were. And they would flutter down on the ground, and they would eat for a while. They would flutter back up on the trees, and they would go in and out. And I couldn't, I couldn't go on. I couldn't, you know, I just had to stop and look at them. And I thought, that's just an amazing gift that I happened to be walking in the cloister and happened to look down at the Central Garden and see all these birds, because I'd never seen that before. And you know, I'm a bird watcher, but I'd never seen those before. So I think in reading John Dido Laurie and Oliver Sacks, the questions came up for me again. What do I want to do with the remainder of my life? What could I do that I'm not already doing? And what am I doing that it would be better not doing? So I continue. I guess my brief answer to share with you to those questions is what do I want to do with the remainder of my life? I want to continue and perhaps expand the letting go of self the letting go of attachments and the letting go of opinions. What could I do that I'm not already doing? I think express more gratitude and generosity. And I want to add to the generosity when when I speak of that, I speak of generosity of spirit, which is what, Reverend Master Giu taught me. Generosity is wonderful when we can make hum- donations to humanitarian causes, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the generosity of our heart. It's the generosity of our spirit that I want to cultivate. What am I doing that it would be better not doing along with letting go? having less criticism and less judgmentalism. So I'm reminded when I think about this of the last few lines of Mary Oliver's poem. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So thank you all for coming, and thanks particularly to those of you who have come here to help the ten of us. <laughs> That's what we were when monks were over at the uh, at the gathering. Um, thank you all very much. And in case you're not aware, there's another. Wonderful thing that we can all be grateful for on, what is it? I wrote it down. Um, On October 14th at 9 a.m., actually 9.13 a.m., there's going to be a lunar eclipse. It's the annual lunar eclipse. 9.13 is the time that NASA predicts that you can see it from Oregon. So hopefully if you can see it from Oregon, then we're going to be able to see it in Northern California. Anyway, thank you all and have a wonderful day.